And I would invite you to take a copy of the Bible somewhere and turn to Psalm 51. If you're using one of the house Bibles here, it's page 474, Psalm 51. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon from the book of Matthew. We've been going through Matthew, of course, together. And we came to a passage, and I preached a sermon on repentance. And one of the things I remember saying in that sermon was, you should learn to pray Psalm 51. And uh, then it was shortly after that, or maybe it was uh, a little before that, but somebody came to me after one of the services and said, you know, Pastor, what do we do when we have really messed up with God? How do we handle that? How do we move forward? And so I shared with him some of the things that really were from right from my heart and from this passage of Scripture. And in doing so, I just felt a, a burden to take a little detour from the Gospel of Matthew and come back to this psalm, Psalm 51, because this is an amazing example for us. Uh, if you read the little inscription at the top of the psalm, You will see it says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, which of course we've just read the background of that and I know it's familiar to almost all of you how David committed the great sin of uh, adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered, essentially murdered her husband to cover up his sin. This hymn, this song was written by that same man but it was written after he'd been confronted by the Word of God and the Lord brought him to a place of confession of sin, repentance of sin, brokenness over what he had done, a prayer for cleansing, a prayer for renewal, a prayer for revival, perhaps the greatest prayer of repentance in all the Bible. Somebody said this psalm, has shown generations of sinners the way home long after they had thought themselves beyond recall. I pray that it will become sweet to you like it's been so sweet and so used in my own life. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and let not your Holy Spirit, uh, take not, excuse me, your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. For you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The sacrifices of the Lord, excuse me, verse 18, do good to Zion in your, ple- in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, the passage we read in 2 Samuel had David covering up his sin which is exactly what every one of us in our flesh is tempted to do when we have sin. We're all of us, everyone, tempted to make an excuse for our sin, to explain it away, to rationalize it, to cover it up, to hide it, to look at other people and point to their wrongdoings, but to do anything but confront our sin, to be broken about our sin. There's something about human nature that refuses to be humbled except by the mighty mercies of God. So at the end of 2 Samuel 11, that's where David was. Covering, hiding, and yet here, what a contrast. What takes place in the interim? And the answer is what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where God raises up His prophet to come and proclaim to David the word of the Lord. And it's the power of the word of God that always breaks the hardest heart and crushes the most resistant and then pours the ointment of salvation upon the broken. That's the way God works. And it is the word of God preached, taught, read that will change your heart that will bring you from hiding your sin to a place of repentance and restoration. And this is what we see here. It is the power, the effect of the power of the Word of God. The Word of God calls sinners to repent. And I don't know who you are this morning or what your background is, all of you, but I do know this, that any sinner who will be willing to humble himself before the Lord Jesus Christ and to call out to God in true repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be delivered from his sin, will be cleansed and made whole. And I also know this, that this is a sermon not only for unbelievers for people who've just lived in their sin, but for people who name the name of Christ, for people who consider themselves to be the Lord's people and are the Lord's people by His mercy. For here is the prayer of repentance of one of us, one who likewise knew communion with God and yet went astray in a big way. 
And you know, the truth is every one of us goes astray. The sin that we had as, as unregenerate people still clings closely to us. The vestiges of that old life are yet to completely fall away. Oh, we want to die more and more to that old self. But we find yet that we have inconsistencies and rebellion and sin in our hearts. Times where we have struggled, where we have fallen. And I want you to think about that for a moment, hard as it may be. Think about your sins and your failures. Whatever sins they may be. Sins of commission, things that you have done, said, or spoken that were hateful to God. Sins of omission, things that you should have done that God gave you to do and yet you rebelled against that. You pulled back from that, you held back from that. Ways that we have not done consistently what the Lord wanted us to do. We've sinned in big ways and small ways, in public ways and in very private ways. Praise God if you're a Christian here and you've been a Christian for a long time, you don't sin like you used to. And maybe the Lord is dealing with you right now about sins that are not the sins that He used to deal with you about. By God's grace, you've seen growth, amen? You've seen victory. You've seen a measure of freedom from that. But now the Lord, as it were, just continues to peel back the onion and to deal with you in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. That is the experience of Christians who walk with the Lord long enough. Oh, they remember those sins that they used to fight in their youth. And they say, Father, do not remember the sins of my youth. But they've also come to realize that though, though perhaps many of those they've, they've grown in and, and they've, they've, they've left behind, yet the Lord is still dealing with them again and again and again in deeper ways, showing them the extent of their depravity. That's the testimony of believers, even believers. And that's why our, our confession said that, that the gospel of, re, of repentance unto salvation needs to continue to be preached to God's people for all time. Because Christian people are people who are oriented toward Christ in faith, which means that they are oriented against their sin on a fundamental level. Their orientation is one of repentance against their sin and hope and trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this psalm is just an outstanding example of what it looks like to humble yourself in the sight of God to be humiliated in your sin and to seek the Lord for the cleansing that only He can give. There are four stages of repentance. If you wanted to ask me, Pastor John, what does it look like to repent? Just as a person who's, who's, who's gone through uh, many times of repentance in my life, I would say, I, I don't see any way you can say it better than the four stages of repentance that are outlined in this chapter. I think Christians who have, who have learned to repent and, and learned how sinful they are, they have learned these things almost by instinct. But here they are all exemplified in one psalm. So I want to put them before you, these four stages of repentance this morning. Acknowledgement, pleading, waiting, and proclaiming. What should you do when you mess up? Acknowledge, plead, wait, 
and proclaim. APWAP, if you will. <laughs> APWP. Acknowledge, plead, wait, proclaim. What does the psalmist do, first of all? Well, he, first of all, admits his sin. And this is what we ought to do. Number one, the first thing when we sin against the Lord God is to acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge it before God. And I think there are four elements that are involved here. First of all, I want you to notice the terms in which the psalmist acknowledges his sin. Notice what he says about his sin. Notice what he calls it. First of all, in verse 2, he confesses his iniquity. Iniquity is not a term we use very often, but it's a term that connotes guilt. I'm guilty. It's a term that recognizes that I've done something that deserves to be punished, exactly. Oh Lord, I have iniquity. He confesses his sin. This is the broadest term of all. This is a term that involves all manner of wrongdoing against God and against men. Then he calls it transgression. Transgression is rebellion. It's when you reproach God, you breach the boundary, you cross the line, you know that there's a clear line in the sand there, and yet you just want to do kind of in that moment what you want to do, and you just go right across and transgress. And then in verse 4, he calls himself evil. Evil. How often do you hear that word today? Somebody saying that they have done something evil. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's part of the, the vocabulary of repentance that most of the world knows nothing about. You know, how many times do we see people out there today saying, uh, sorry, not sorry, right? Uh, oh, forgive me if I messed up. If you were offended, I'm sorry. You know, well, I made some mistakes were made, right? Oh, well, I'm sorry for all the trouble I caused, but, you know, there were extenuating circumstances. You can think of a thousand ways that people confess supposed wrongdoing in a way that really does not come to terms with it. And that's what, that's what the psalmist is doing. He's coming to terms, literally, with the vocabulary of humility that brings a person, the only thing that brings a person to the place where he should be before God. Notice also, with regard to admitting your sin, that David confesses that his sin is first and foremost against God Himself. Notice verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Of course he sinned against people. Of course he sinned against Bathsheba. Of course he's, he sinned against Uriah. Of course he sinned against his family. Of course he sinned against in ways that will cause all kinds of problems for all of the people in his life. Every single person in his life will be affected because of his sin. But he recognizes that his sin is first and foremost, more than anything else, above and beyond anything else, a sin against his God. That's when you know that your heart is truly repentant. Sinning against sinners is evil, but sinning against the Holy One of Heaven 
is the greatest possible evil. You understand that rebellion against God is the root of rebellion and sin against all other people. So that we haven't gone deep enough in our repentance of sin if all we think about is how our sin has affected our families and caused them pain. Yes, we ought to think about that. But we haven't gone deep enough yet. We haven't gone deep enough if all we think about is how our sin has made our lives very difficult and maybe made others' lives difficult. Yes, it's important to think about that. But we haven't gone deep enough until we recognize, God, I have sinned against you. I have trespassed against your law. I have rebelled against you, my maker, the God who gave me every good thing that I enjoy. The God who is so good and kind and patient and long-suffering and merciful and just abundantly gracious. And I have rebelled against you. I have not loved you enough to do what you wanted me to do. Oh God, forgive me. Against you and you only have I sinned. When you can say that in earnest then you know that the grace of God has begun to dig down deep into your soul. Thirdly, with regard to acknowledging our sin, we see that David speaks words of agreement with God. He confesses. You know the literal meaning of confess means to say the same thing as the charge that's been made. Here's the charge, and you just own it. This is true of me. There, I'm, there's no quibbling here. There's no argument. I agree with that 100%. I am guilty. Notice what David says in the end of verse 4. Take a look at the end of verse 4. So that he says, God, you have dealt with me so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. My sin is such that God is absolutely just to judge me. He's absolutely blameless to charge me with guilt. I have no quarrels. I have no excuses. I have no complaints to make against God with regard to my situation. God is justified in His words and blameless in his judgments. This is quoted in Romans chapter 3 by the Apostle Paul, who said, let God be true, though every man were a liar. That's the spirit of repentance, the spirit that says, God is absolutely right. What he said about me is absolutely true. The Bible teaches us that God gave us the law so that every mouth might be stopped, that everybody would shut up. Quit trying to make excuses for themselves. They would know that we would know that we're sinful and have no excuses left so that all the world may become guilty before God. Romans chapter 3. Like the thief on the cross. Remember Jesus was crucified between two thieves and the one said, if you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross and save us. And the other one said, do you not understand who you're talking to? And do you not realize that we're getting exactly what we, what? Deserve. That's the spirit of repentance. That's the, that's the, that's the level of lowness at which God meets you with mercy. With God meets you with grace. Until you get that low, 
Until you stop making excuses. Until you say, this is me. I have sinned against God. And I have no excuse to hold up. I have nothing to hide behind. Then, until you get to that point, you're not ready for that restoration. You're not in a place where God can really bring you into that restoration that that you so need. When I sin, I say to the Lord, I have seen in my actual experience that what you say about me is absolutely true. I've seen it. I know it. I've experienced it. In my flesh, there is no good thing. When you come to that point where you can agree with God like that, then repentance has begun to work down deep. And notice also that David said with regard to admitting his sin that that he was sinful. He he admitted that his sin went right down to to the level of his very nature. The nature of who he is in the flesh. That is apart from grace. Apart from union with God in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 5. What he says about himself is astounding to most people in the world. I don't think most people in the world would actually believe this. I don't believe it. I think most people in the world would reject this theology. Look at what David says in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. You get what David's saying? He's going back far prior to his sin with Bathsheba. He's going back far before his childhood. He's going all the way back into his life in the womb. And he says, even from my birth, I have been iniquitous, sinful. I have been from my very nature, in in my human nature, just being born into this world, I was born sinful. Let me stop here and just give a a, a by-the-way point of application. If that's true, if this man confessed, as we all should, that he was guilty before God, he was sinful in his nature, even in the womb, if we're responsible to God, morally responsible, even in the womb, that says something very powerful about life in the womb, right? That life begins not when we take our first breath, but even in our mother's womb. We are born, we are created, and uh, David acknowledges our, 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 our life is sinful. This is the doctrine of total depravity, that human beings are born with the guilt and the, and the um, sinfulness of our first parents, Adam. Just being born as human beings, we are born intentionally rebellious to God. Most people think, you, you see if this isn't right, most people think that people are generally good. And, and so, if, you want, if, that's, if that's your starting place, okay, that people are generally good, then how do they become bad? Well, they become bad because of something outside of them that 
pressures them to be bad. So we look for things to blame. The system, their environment, their family, something that happened to them when they were a child. We look for all these things outside of themselves. Hey, friends, this is not to excuse all of the evil in the world. There's a lot of evil in the world. There's a lot of bad things that happen to us that exacerbate our temptations, but nothing outside of us makes us sinful. The Bible's view of humanity is that we are sinful even from the formation of our bodies in the womb. We come out little sinners. And unless the grace of God intervenes, that's the way we'll live. David was not content to, I'll say it this way, the the God of mercy was not content to humble David until he had humbled him all the way to the point where he acknowledged that his sin went right down to the very core. I mean, his very identity, who he was. This is another huge implication for a Christian theology of, of living in this world and interacting with the world. The idea of your identity, who you are as a person. The Bible teaches us this, that by nature, apart from grace, apart from union with Christ by God's mercy, we are in our nature sinners. That's who we are by our identity. And, and, and the gospel must go as down as deep as the very core of our being. In other words, total depravity teaches us that when we mess up, it's not some freak event. That when we sin, we, we should not say, well, that is so out of character for me. I, I understand what we mean when we, when we say that. I'm not over-criticizing it. But what I, what I don't want us to do is to think deeper than that, to realize that is our character apart from grace. The character of our natural self is one of rebellion against God, It is not out of character to sin. It is exactly in character. And for David, his sin with Bathsheba and then against Uriah were extreme expressions of that warped creature that he had always been. We are so fundamentally messed up that when we confess our sins, we have to say, God, what I need is nothing short of a miracle for you to make something new in me that's not what I am by nature. And only you can do that. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Oh, you know, one of my most frequent prayers of confession and repentance is, oh Lord, please come and do a work in me, for without you I can do nothing. God will not be content to merely clean up the outside. He will continue His conviction until we realize our need for transformation at a fundamental level. In so doing, we admit our sin. We acknowledge our sin before God. And that brings us to the second stage. What should we do when we mess up? When we sin, we acknowledge our sin. We admit our guilt. We confess. We agree with God about ourselves. And then secondly, we plead with Him for cleansing. We plead with Him. 
I want to admonish you, my brothers, my sisters, whom I love deeply, to learn the habit of literally doing these things. When you sense sin in your heart, that you learn to speak in the terminology of the Scripture and to say these things and to make yourself low, and then you learn how to plead with God. How do you plead with God when you're a sinner? What can a sinner possibly have to plead with God? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, the, uh, once again, the terms in which he pleads with the Lord. And there are five of them. Verse 1, what does he say? O Lord, blot out my transgression. You know, the Bible teaches that that's, it is as if God has books, record books, of all of the things that we have done and said. The Bible teaches us that when, when Christians speak together words of faith, God writes them down in His book of remembrance, as it were. And the Bible teaches that one day the books will be opened, right? But here, the psalmist is asking him to strike it out of the book, to just mark through it, to take those words that record that ill deed, that angry word, that lustful thought, to literally wipe them out of his book to blot them out, to erase them from the ledger book. And of course, only the gospel can tell you how much that cost. Because Colossians 2 verse 14 says that Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us. It was the cross that enabled God to wipe out those debts because they were paid in full. He says, blot out my transgression. Verse 2, verse 2, he says, wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Oh Lord, learn how to pray this way. Oh Lord, wash me and cleanse me. You remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? He said He was teaching them two things. Number one, the, the lesson of humility that they should serve and love one another. But He was also teaching them another lesson about spiritual cleansing. He looked at them and He said, you're all clean. Not all of you, but, but those who belong to Him. You are clean. And nevertheless... In spite of your being clean, you still need to have your feet washed. There are some people who need to be cleaned in the first place. They need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just merely baptized outwardly, but baptized inwardly by the grace of the gospel. They need to be converted and saved and repentant in such a way that God brings them to Himself. But, but then there is also this, that we need to be washed all the time. Because getting out and walking through this world, we get our lives messed up and we, we trample through the mud and we, we walk places where we shouldn't walk. And the Lord Jesus was saying, you need to continually be washed, washed, washed. And this is a ministry you have with one another as you urge one another to repent toward God and to put your faith and trust continually in the Lord Jesus Christ. You wash me, He says. Cleanse me. Verse 7, He says, purge me. Purge me from my sin. This is a fantastic word that I don't know any way to describe except to give it to you almost as it is literally. It, it literally reads this way, unsin me or de-sin me. In fact, the word, the most common word for sin is a part of this word. Just unsin me. You ever wish you could kind of go back to something that you messed up and do it all over again? Pretend like it just never happened, just reverse time, make it all go backwards and come to the place where everything is brand new all over again? 
This is what he's asking the Lord to do. Oh, Lord, bring me back to that place. Make it as if, and only, only a miraculous God can do this. Make it as if I had never sinned. Unsin me, O oh Lord. Purge me. Not only forgive my sin, but remove it from me that I may go in a new direction. And then in verse 9, he uses the term, hide your face from my sins. Hide your face from my sins, O God. That's what we want the Lord to do, isn't it? This is the opposite of Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. But now in the gospel we say, Lord, turn your face away. Hide your face. Put my sins behind your back. Put them in the deepest sea. Put them as far from you as the east is from the west. Oh, Lord, please hide your face from my sins. And then finally, he says in verse 10, he uses the terminology, Oh, create in me a clean heart. Notice the terminology he uses is terminology of creation. It's like when God was in the very beginning and he said, Let there be and there was. It's like when Jesus spoke the word to Lazarus, a dead man four days, Lazarus come forth and he did. It's miraculous. It's just creative. It is a miracle and that's exactly what we need if we're going to be cleansed before God is a miracle. We cannot make ourselves clean. Oh God, do something for me that there is no way I can do for myself. Oh, I can try to turn over a new leaf. I can try to be a better person. I can grit my teeth and say, I'm going to be nicer to my wife for the rest of this week. I can grit my teeth and I'm going to say, I'm going to resist the temptations that come this time. But I cannot make my heart new, make it clean. And that's what he's asking for is nothing short of a miracle, a creative miracle. On what grounds do you think a sinner could possibly ask God to do those things? A, a, a sinner. Yeah, here's one. Here are the two grounds. Okay, take a look. The first one in verse number one. The first is the character of God Himself. This is, this is the sinner's hope and plea. It is the character of God. What does He say? Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your steadfast love, according to Your abundant Mercy, O oh Lord, blot out my transgressions. This is your foundation. You have nothing else in yourself, right? You have no excuses. You have no standing. You have no ground before God to say, God, wipe it all away. Pretend like it never happened. Make me new. But here's your ground. Your ground is God. Your ground is not in you. Your ground is in God because God is a God of mercy and God is a God of steadfast love to those who call upon Him. This term, steadfast love, is, is the term that describes God's covenant relationship with His people. We spoke earlier about the covenant of God's grace where He obligates Himself. You know, nobody obligates God to anything, right? Nobody puts God in their debt. But God, in His mercy, obligates Himself to His people in the covenant of grace. And so He is... I just love the way that... ESV translates it, he is full of steadfast love. This is relentless love. It is resolute. It is unfailing. It is persistent. It's the kind of love that says, what I started, I'm not going to stop. What I began, I will continue to perform. I am both the Alpha and the Omega. I am the founder of your faith and the perfecter of it. And I will be faithful 
to all those who will continue to call upon me. He is abundant in his mercy. And on that ground, David has hope enough to make a plea. But that's not the only ground. There's another. And that is in verse number 7. And that is this. He grounds his appeal on the application of the atonement. On the application of Christ's atonement for his people. Verse number 7, he says, here's the words in which this this is buried in Old Testament language now. But here's Christ's atonement in verse number 7. Purge me with what? Hyssop and I shall be clean. Now if you think about that terminology in terms of an Old Testament saint, his mind would go back to the very first use of the hyssop in the Bible in Exodus chapter 12 on what became known as the day of Passover, right? And they were told to take that hyssop branch and to take a lamb and to kill that lamb and to take some of the blood from that lamb. And they would take that blood and they would put it all over the door of their house. And when the angel of God's judgment came through, he would pass over all of those who were covered over by the blood that he himself had provided for them. He would pass over them in judgment and would give them mercy instead. This is the first uh, great picture of that hyssop pointing the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also used hyssop again in Leviticus 14 and Numbers chapter 19 um, with regard to cleansing rituals by which the people of Israel were ceremonially cleansed before God and the, and the hyssop branch was used in those. All of these things point to Christ who is both the covering for our sin, whose blood covers us and whose blood cleanses us. It points us to His uh, atonement that He has made for us. There is no other hope, no other plea. Behold the Lamb, the spotless Lamb who takes away our sin. The debt we faced was not erased, but paid in full by Him. Do you get that? Did you hear that last line? The debt we faced was not erased, but paid in full by Him. Somebody says, I thought the debt was erased. I thought it was blotted out of the book. It was, but it wasn't blotted out at the expense of God's justice. It was blotted out in mercy at the cost of the sacrificial lamb. And the only way that God could possibly forgive any of your sins is if your sins were punished in someone else. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to be the Lamb of God, to take the place of sinners, that He was slain so that we might be set free, that we might be made right with Him because He paid every portion of our sins. And only in Jesus Christ do we have grounds. Only in Christ and through His shed blood and His righteous life do we have grounds to ask God, blot out my sin, remember it no more, put it behind your back, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me. Oh Lord, on the basis of Jesus Christ and Him alone. What have we seen so far? Okay, what we've seen, first of all, is acknowledging our sin, and then secondly, pleading with God for cleansing. We have looked inward, and then we have looked outward. 
Right? We've looked in at our sin, and then we've looked out at God and His character and the atonement of Christ. We've looked down at how bad we are, and then we have looked up at how gracious God is and how gloriously holy Jesus is. This is the way in which Christians repent of sin. They look in and then they look out. They look down and then they look up. And boy, you need both. You need both. I know there are times when, well, I'll just put it in the words of Charles Spurgeon. Sometimes we are inclined to think that a very great portion of modern revivalism has been more a curse than a blessing because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they have known their misery. Restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never making them say, Father, I have sinned. How can he be healed who is not sick? Or he be satisfied with the bread of life who is not hungry? The old-fashioned sense of sin is despised. And consequently, a religion is run up before the foundations are dug out. Everything in this age is shallow. Deep sea fishing is almost an extent, extinct business as far as men's souls are concerned. The consequence is that men leap into religion and then leap out again. Unhumbled they came into the church, unhumbled they remain in it, and unhumbled they go from it. Repentance does not happen until first we look inward, to first we look down. We, 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 we come to the point where we see ourselves as God truly does. The person who never looks down, who never looks in, who never feels guilt, who never has shame, presumes upon the grace of God and knows not how much he needs it. What the Lord would have for us to do is to first look in and then look down. But I tell you also, I think sometimes that that Christians get to, to the other part of the extreme. And they, they look inward and they look downward and they see how guilty they are and they feel the weight of their sin. And they're, as it were, almost crushed underneath that weight. And they say, oh, I'll try to do better. Because if I can only do better next week, then I won't feel this guilt anymore. If I can only do better next month, then I can, then I can have a lot less of this weight upon my shoulders for my own wrongdoing. And I tell you, friends, that's not the answer. The only answer for you is to look up to look outside of yourself at an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. In Christ and in Christ alone will you find hope and help. You need to not only look down, but to look up. Not only to look in, but to look out. Outside of yourself. You know, so many Christians have, have come to a point where they, where they feel guilty about sin and they desire to do better and, and it's almost like a, a, a sort of mental self-flagellation and they whip themselves and if I could just discipline myself to be a better person, then I'll be acceptable to God. And as Luther found out, there's no amount of decrying one's own sin that will give you peace with God. It is only looking as he said, outside of yourself for a righteousness that's not your own. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. John Bunyan felt the guilt of his sin so heavily for so many years of his life. And he was set free when this one sentence dawned upon his soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. Jesus Christ, he said, that is my righteousness. What need I more? My righteousness is right there beside the Father. Where need He look? 
My righteousness is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It never waxes and never wanes. My righteousness is as complete as the good and perfect life of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what I mean by looking outward and looking upward. I tell you, this is what repentance looks like. And you, I pray that you and I may learn more keenly from the Scripture how to repent. You look inward and you look down and you, you pray that, that repentance would become deeper. The only way to get higher is to go deeper. People who just want to get, go, go higher in grace will find that, that the more they pursue uh, uh, bettering themselves and thinking better of themselves, the more frustrated they will be. Going higher always means going lower. And it's at the depths of your own sense of your depravity that you find what mercy is all about. So we have acknowledgement and we have pleading and moving quickly to the last two, we have waiting for mercy. Verses 8 through 12 of Psalm 51. And many of the verbs here are actually in the future tense. He's he's looking for God to, to bring mercy again in the future. To, to revive him, to restore him, to reawaken him. There are three manifestations of, these, of God's mercy that he's waiting on the Lord for. They all start with an R. Number one, restoration. He's looking to the Lord for restoration of what? Of joy and happiness, gladness. Notice verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones that you have broken... See, that's that's getting low. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's not enough to know that God is a great Savior. God will not be content until you feel that He is a great Savior. It's not enough to know that I'm a sinner and sin is bad. The Gospel is not... Finish doing a work in your heart until you feel the weight of sin and you feel with amazement the joy at being released from that sin. Oh, give me back the joy of my salvation, he prays. Let me know joy and gladness. This is not to say that the Christian life and your relationship with God, that it depends on emotions. No, it depends on Christ, always the same but the Lord would definitely have you to have these emotions, to seek Him for them, to wait on Him for joy and rejoicing, the restoration of that. Secondly, He waits for renewal, renewal of His Spirit. Notice verse 10. Verse 10, the end of the verse, renew a right or steadfast spirit within me. Uphold me, verse 12, the end of the verse 12. Uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, and sometimes in our spirit, in our human spirit, we get aligned with the flesh. We lose our willingness to do what the Lord would have us to do. And what he's praying for is not just that God will forgive me and count it not against me. 
but that God will actually renew within me a a spirit that is steadfast and true to Him, a spirit that's willing and desirous to do what He wants me to do. Have you ever known that? I mean, when you've actually gone to confession, I mean, confess your sins to the Lord, and you've pleaded with the Lord for mercy, then you've waited, and at some point He has renewed within you a spirit that says, I want to do what God wants me to do. I'm steadfast in that. He restores to you the joy of walking close to Him. Some of you, I wonder, you know, how, how, when was the last time you just enjoyed the presence of the Lord? And, and the answer for us is, is going deep and then going high, going down and then going up. And then while we're rejoicing, bemoaning our sin and rejoicing in the goodness of Christ, we wait, we wait, we wait for God to come and give that joy back, the joy of our salvation, the renewal of our spirit. And finally and thirdly, he says, for the reawakening. He's waiting for the reawakening um, of God's presence uh, and spirit, the sense of God's presence and a, an awareness of God's spirit. Verse 11, take a look at verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your... Holy Spirit from me. Like the Lord did with Saul, right? He turned his back on Saul and turned his attention to David. David says, oh Lord, don't let this happen with me. Or like Samson, who was empowered by the Spirit to do great things for God, but who trusted in himself instead of in the Lord and turned his back on the Lord and sinned in many ways. And the Lord took his Spirit from Samson. And Samson didn't even realize that David pleads, oh Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, I think it is true that a Christian who's truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit will never be lost. But I will say this, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We can know what it is to be far distant from any sense of the Spirit's control. And that's not the way you want to live. We could be spiritually asleep with every spiritual sense dulled to the presence of God. Oh, God made you to live in, his pre- in the constant awareness of His presence. That's pure joy. He's praying, oh Lord, reawaken that sense of Your presence. Reawaken that sensitivity to Your Spirit. And sometimes you have to wait for that. You know, forgiveness, when you confess your sin, when you mess up and, and you acknowledge your sin, and, and you plead for cleansing, then you begin to wait for God's restoration, for, for, his, for the sense of forgiveness, for, for that, uh, that renewal and reawakening of His presence. Sometimes you have to wait. Or at least that's been my experience. How long do you have to wait, Pastor? Well, I don't know. Sometimes minutes, sometimes hours, sometimes feels like days go by where you're seeking God. And every day you get up, maybe you, you're, you still feel the guilt of your sin. And you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm confessing to you what I confessed yesterday. I know it's wrong. I know it's evil. I, I'm, I'm born in iniquity. Oh God, without you I can do nothing. Oh, please save me. I look to Jesus Christ. He was perfect on my behalf. You, you go through this and you, and you wait and you wait and, and there's no joy. 
And there's no internal sense that you've been forgiven. You have to take it by faith. And you should. You take, should take it by faith that Christ is your righteousness. But oh, you're waiting and waiting and waiting for that renewal, for that revival, for that restoration. And then, and then maybe sometime when you're not hardly even expecting it, the faintest wind of the Holy Spirit begins to blow across the desert landscape of your heart. And you feel the first stirrings of revival, of renewed love for the Lord, of real, the beginnings of new communion with Him. And you say, yes, Lord, more of that. Oh, for the showers, we plead. For the showers of blessings, Lord, send them on my poor parched soul. And He begins to do that. And how many, many, many times have Christians experienced that again and again and again, the mercy of God's reviving and restoring and assuring and giving again to them the joy of their salvation. So you wait, and you wait in faith. And then finally, that brings us to this. What did the psalmist do when God finally revived, when He renewed him, when He amazed him with God's own mercies to him? He finally proclaimed God's great salvation. Notice verse 13. Then, you see the word then? That's a good word to circle. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I tell you, only people who have been broken and humbled by sin can earnestly proclaim the grace of God. They're people who know what sin is. They're people who know what grace is. I tell you, those have, who have been forgiven much, they, as Jesus said, what? They love much, right? Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ, but the Lord said to him, when you have turned again, Peter, you will go and strengthen the brothers. That's what forgiven people do. They know the miracle that God has done in saving them, cleansing them, reviving them, restoring them, renewing them. And so they speak, they sing, they pronounce the goodness of God with genuine amazement. Charles Bridges encouraged pastors in the 1800s, pastors who knew well their own shortcomings, and he said to them, the sense of defilement almost shuts your mouth, but the sense of mercy will fill your heart so that you cannot be silent. This is what David felt. He ought to have a shut mouth if it was only his sin that he had to think about. But he was a recipient of the mercies of God such that opened his mouth and you couldn't keep it quiet. Do you know the Lord's salvation? Do you know God's salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the miracle of having God create a new heart in you? Maybe you're a Christian here and you still find that sin clings so closely. My answer to one and both of you is all the same, and that is to run to Christ. To run to Christ, to humble yourself before God, to admit your sin, to acknowledge it with all humility before God, to plead with Him on the grounds of His character and the atonement of Jesus Christ, to wait for mercy. 
and to proclaim his salvation. If you will humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. And maybe you're right now, maybe you're in a place where you have recently sinned and you're confessing your sin and you feel like, where is the Lord? Is he answering? And I just tell you to wait, brother. Wait, sister, on the Lord until you know that he's answered your prayers. And then glory in his name. Not in any way that's put on, but genuinely from your heart. Because you've known grace. Our Heavenly Father, thank you now for this word. And I pray that you would bring it to life in the minds and in the practices of your people. Lord, grow an ability to repent in the hearts of your people so that they might know grace and might proclaim it with a full heart. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As the pianist plays...